Welcome to Stories of Iceland. It isn't always easy to find the time to write and record this podcast, but my Patreon supporters encourage me. But I really do need more support if I'm going to be able to stick to a schedule. I have had offers which would likely give me more money per episode, but it would also mean that subscribers would have to install a special app. It would also mean ads that I had no control over, which I really don't find appealing. If you're not yet a Patreon supporter, then you can go to patreon.com slash stories of Iceland and sign up and sign on. I will add more bonus features there in the future, and I always post episodes there early. My goal is to make the episodes more frequently and, and adhere to a schedule. I'm also always happy to see reviews of my podcast. My newest supporter is Natalie Rowley. I would also like to give special thanks to Troy Williams. But this is Stories of Iceland, and this is the 16th episode, and it's called Amazing Tale, A Personal Story of the Crass. Iceland is in the North Atlantic. Its capital city is Reykjavik. When you're telling a true story, it is often difficult to know when to start. I want to start with the warning from my grandfather. I was 12 years old at my grandparents' house in my hometown of Akureyri. My grandfather the one from Troublemaker Valley, was discussing politics with one of his sons. The subject was a leadership contest in the so-called Independence Party of Iceland. There was going to be a vote between the then-current party chairman, Thorsted Paulson, and the mayor of Reykjavik, David Otson. My grandfather remarked that the current chairman was harmless, but David Otson was dangerous. He also said that the Independence Party was a bunch of damn Nazis. In Icelandic, he said they were Helvitis Nazis. At that point, I said something about agreeing with him. My grandfather had probably not realized that I was listening to him and said that I shouldn't say such things if I couldn't support my views with arguments. I understood that my grandfather didn't want me just to echo his statements and copy his beliefs. Today I have a better understanding of history. I know that my grandfather had seen Icelanders of his own generation marching under the Nazi flag and then, when Iceland was occupied by British forces, 
those Nazis had simply joined the Independence Party and then risen to influence and never had to answer uncomfortable questions about their youthful indiscretions. So when my grandfather called them Nazis, it wasn't hyperbole or empty rhetoric. It was a statement grounded in history. The dangerous man whom my grandfather warned us about, became the chairman of the Independence Party and a little later the Prime Minister of Iceland. His name is David Otson and the year was 1991. His political philosophy was based on, to use a phrase coined in 1980 by future US President George Bush Sr. as Voodoo Economics. It has also been called trickle-down economics. David Otton was prime minister for an unprecedented 13 years. His government's lower taxes on the bits made health care more expensive, slowly made the police more like a military, sold off government assets, privatized as many institutions as he could, and deregulated the economy. The privatization schemes of David Otson inspired a new word in Icelandic, Enkavinavæðing, which in English would be private friend assation. The implication was clear. David wasn't a reformer. He was simply handing out government property and offices to the right people. The right people usually were those who had the right friends, belonged to the right family, and the right political party. This did fuel economic growth for a while, but also created a society where the top 0.1% didn't just have nice houses and nice cars. They had huge houses, ridiculously expensive cars, and even houses and apartments all over the world. They also stored their wealth in offshore accounts, which were unreachable by Icelandic tax authorities. The Icelandic banks were the epitome of this madness. Before, they had been mostly owned by the government. Cronyism had been rampant, but the government had clamped down on any excess. All this changed. The banks and their owners went wild. They spent money madly and stupidly on a lot of Icelanders. Even those who had been critical before played along. Respectable artists and professors helped the banks put on a veneer of respectability. In hindsight, the year 2007 is seen as the peak of the Icelandic bubble. The banks encouraged ordinary people to spend beyond their means and even convinced elderly people to put their life savings into hedge funds. In 2008, the cracks slowly began to become noticeable. Rumors about the impending fall of the banks surfaced. At the same time, I remember becoming more and more terrified while trying to appear calm. It was a weird time for me personally. I was in the middle of writing my master's thesis in folklore, but I had also been forced to get a job, so I didn't really have any time to write. In the summer, my partner, my now wife, became pregnant, and in the fall she had a miscarriage. 
who had scheduled a trip to Scotland in the beginning of October, which seemed a good opportunity to relax for a bit. Before the trip, I began to watch the exchange rates, which had been fluctuating, so I would know what to expect to pay for British pounds. It was then that I saw an anomaly that really scared me. The exchange rate for the Icelandic krona was listed quite differently by foreign banks. According to the Icelandic banks, the krona had lost a little bit of value, but according to other sources, the krona had crumbled to half its value, or even less. This was much worse than was being reported by the Icelandic media. Later, I understood that the banks who are sometimes owned by the same people that owned the media, were using all their power to silence rumors, while, at the same time, trying to advance the conspiracy theory about jealous foreigners who were trying to sabotage the Icelandic banking system. At this time, the Independence Party was still in power, as it had been since 1991. David Otson had retired to what should have been what we Icelanders call a nice inside job, which actually means working inside a house rather than committing financial crimes, but the translation is actually quite apt. David had taken a job at the Central Bank of Iceland. His chosen successor, Geir Horte, was Prime Minister. October 2008 started well. My friends in the Faroese band Tyr toured Iceland, and I followed them, but that joy was short-lived. It was the 6th of October, Monday, when the banks really collapsed. We could see it happening. At 4pm, the Prime Minister, Geir Horte, delivered a televised address to the Icelandic people, which has gone down in history as the God Bless Iceland speech. It was named so because Geir ended by saying the words Guð blessi Íslam. It is very unusual for an Icelandic politician to invoke God in speeches, so this didn't inspire confidence. It actually inspired panic. I never saw or heard the speech since I had decided to leave work and by what I've since called the most expensive British pounds that Iceland has ever seen. The exchange rate in the Icelandic banks had finally equaled what the foreign internet sites had reported for months. In the next few days, the government and Althingi tried to rescue the banks and the economy. That is a whole different story. I, on the other hand, flew from Keflavik to Glasgow on Thursday. Luckily, the flight and hotels had been paid in advance. We spent our time in Scotland quite differently than we had on previous trips. We didn't try to find nice restaurants. Instead, we had packed sandwiches from home, noodles, a meal deal from the Boots drugstore, and of course a very fried Scottish breakfast buffet at the hotel. We spent as little as we could and we got text messages from Iceland every day informing us 
what the exchange rate for our credit cards was. And also just a verification that our credit cards were still valid. At the hotel, we watched the news. The Icelandic crash had reached Scotland via an online branch called iSafe. So we saw Scottish MPs debating the Icelandic situation on the floor of the Scottish Parliament the night before we actually took a tour of the Scottish Parliament in Edinburgh. The last part of the trip was back in Glasgow, where we went to see Queen plus Paul Rogers, a concert by the original drummer and guitarist from the band Queen, Roger Taylor and Brian May, with the singer Paul Rogers from Bad Company and Free. We did enjoy the show and it did take our minds of other things. Those other things were waiting for us back in Iceland. People were talking about a literal revolution that seemed possible, though I clearly said the situation wouldn't boil over until the end of January. The reason was that the standard contract of an Icelandic worker calls for three months' notice before he leaves work. My own situation was really unclear. I had been hired to work for one year, and coincidentally, my contract ran out at the end of January. No one seemed to know anything. Not my superiors at work, not the government. In November, there was another pregnancy, causing both personal hope and anxiety. For the rest of Iceland, there were other news. An activist called Hukur Hilmarsson did you hear the snow and ice crashing down from the top of the building? An activist called Hukur Hilmarsson climbed on top of the Althingi, the House of Parliament, and raised the flag of a discount supermarket chain. There were still crowds protesting, but everything was more subdued. There was a sort of yuletide truce. But then January came, nothing seemed to change. The government was still the same. Thousands of people, a large percentage of the Icelandic nation, was working out their notice and would be unemployed at the start of February. I was turning 30 at the 4th of February. My first child was on its way, if there wasn't another miscarriage. I didn't know if I had a job. I didn't know if I could finish my master's thesis. It was January 20th when the pot really began to boil. It was not a coincidence that this is the same day that Barack Obama was sworn in as the 44th president of the United States of America. Obama was at least then, seen as a beacon of hope and change. Iceland didn't have any hope and nothing seemed to be changing. January 20th was a Tuesday. We had large-scale demonstrations before, but they were mostly on Saturday afternoons and only lasted an hour or so. Maybe Obama was the tipping point. Maybe it was discussions about a proposed bill from a member of the Independence Party 
which aimed at making it legal to sell alcohol in Icelandic supermarkets. No one wanted to spend time debating alcohol in supermarket. It was a yearly distraction, much too trivial at that point in time. So demonstrators started to gather on the field in front of Althingi. Slowly but surely, the crowd started to grow. The police didn't seem to know how to handle the crowd and started using clubs and pepper spray, especially on people who were using their cameras to document police action. Journalists weren't spared. I was at home and saw what was happening on the news, on blogs and Facebook. People I knew were attacked. So I went down and took my video camera with me. The demonstration wasn't violent, but it did have a sense of purpose. Everyone wanted the government to abdicate and new elections to be held. Most of the evening I spent walking around talking to people of all sorts from every party except maybe the independent party had come. I met my cousin and talked to him. Things seemed to have calmed down, but it was uncomfortable to see Icelandic police officers dressed up in riot gear, as if they were British soldiers in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. They seemed out of place, but calmer than they had been earlier in the day. There were people throwing eggs at the Parliament building, I remember being handed an egg by a girl who asked me if I wanted to join them. I gave her the egg back. It seemed like a line I didn't want to cross. In the middle of the square there stood a big yule tree, given to Reykjavik by Oslo, Norway. In any other year it would have been taken down long before. The protesters had already started a fire in the square to keep warm, and had used various things as kindling. Now they tore down the tree and added it to the fire. Hours passed, and the number of protesters started to dwindle. Instead of letting the protest die out on its own, the police seemed to want to assert their dominance and tried to move the remaining protesters back. They stormed out towards the fire to put it out. I I kept away from the police, but then I saw a police officer kicking a protester on the ground. I picked up my camera to document the assault, and then, without any warning, I felt something being sprayed, mostly straight into my left eye. <laughs> when I got home later in the night, I wrote a description of, of what happened and how I felt. The next few moments were horrible. I couldn't see anything. My eyes were on fire. My face was on fire. I screamed, both because of the pain and to attract help. I hear somebody say, can someone help this man? And somebody took my hand and led me away. I didn't see where I was going and didn't know who was leading me. On the way, I realized that I need to spit because the pepper spray also went into my mouth. Then I was stopped and told to get on my knees. Then I was told that there would be soap sprayed into my eyes. When that was over, I was directed 
to put my face in a trough full of water in front of me. I didn't feel any better. My face is on fire. My eyes are on fire. I am scared that I will lose my eyesight. The ritual is repeated a few times. Meanwhile, I am blind, but I hear that around me there are other people that are being treated. I heard someone say the number five, that five people had been sprayed. I am told that I will get stronger soap to wash my eyes. I follow directions and try to wash the pepper from my face as well, which begins to feel a little better. My eyes are still on fire. I dip my head again into the trough for as long as I can, but it's difficult because it doesn't help my eyes. I get a washcloth to try and dry me off and wash myself. After this, I was told to lay back and they started to drip sailing on my face. I am asked to open my eyes, but I can't, not yet. When I'm finally able to start to open my eye, I am more relieved than I have ever been before. I see light. I see very little else. They keep washing my eye out, and I am told to move my eye. I am hardly able to fathom the idea that I could actually manage something like that. My eyes are on fire. In a while, I begin to see the shape of the yellow vest of the paramedic who is helping me. After a little while, he turns his attention to someone else. The pain had faded a bit, but it starts again and I can't keep my eyes open and call for more water. The paramedic sprays more water in my eyes. I started to wonder how I am going to get myself home. I am not going to drive like this. I realize that I can call my cousin. I still couldn't keep my eyes open for more than a little bit, so that was a difficult process. He answers his phone, and after looking around, I say that I'm probably somewhere behind the cathedral. Until that point, I had no idea where I was. Then I realized that I am, in fact, beside the cathedral. I thank the paramedic, and I have seldom been as grateful to anyone. With me is someone I don't know who is offering to drive me home. My cousin comes along and walks with me towards his car. On the way, I saw a police officer and try to scream something at him, but I am too confused to verbalize my feelings. Despite everything, I am still more surprised than angry that police would, without warning, use pepper spray on a peaceful protester. Actually, I had told my cousin earlier that I had a bad feeling about a few of the policemen who stood there. They reminded me of drunk people whose eyes tell you that they are looking for someone to fight, preferably to cause pain. I was sprayed when the television cameras had gone and most of the people. It was an arbitrary action to assert dominance. The protest continued the next day. There were more reports of police violence. I was at home. I was having an internal conflict. There was a part of me that wanted to go downtown, 
not just to protest, but simply to get revenge. A part of me wanted to go and beat up cops. That was a horrible feeling and so unlike me that it scared me. But I did make a different decision. I started watching episodes of the wonderful sitcom Scrubs and slowly my heart stopped racing and the angry tension subsided. Others continued the protests and a week or so after the assault the government collapsed. But I think this event and everything that was going on at the time caused me to have what I think I can only call a nervous breakdown. A little while later I lost my job, mostly because I couldn't handle authority figures. I did manage to finish my master's degree that summer, and a few weeks later my son was born. I spent a year at home with him, part-time paternity leave, part-time unemployed. Later I developed uh, twits in my left eye, the same left eye that got most of the pepper spray. It is sometimes accompanied by anxiety and migraines. David Otson is still dangerous. After the crash, he was fired from the central bank. He responded by getting his friends to hire him as the editor of a newspaper. There, he has continued to help his private friends. His editorials and the racist cartoons that have been published on his watch seem to show that my grandfather was not far off in his assessment back in 1991. That is it for today. Again, thank you for listening and thanks to my Patreon supporters including Austin Yule, Fred Sudler, Jon Helgeson, Troy Williams. I am Olignestis Oliason, and this has been Stories of Iceland, episode 16, Amazing Tale, a personal story of the crass.